Well, I have something up here that is a precious commodity. It is something that every 16-year-old in the state of California longs for. But it's something that they have to work for. It has to be earned. But boy, once you get it, you have power. You have bragging rights. Um, you have you, you have instant friends. Um, sometimes you even have instant attention from members of the opposite sex. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, driver's license. I got mine the day I turned 16. I'm holding up. This is actually Mark, our sound man's uh, driver's license. And Mark, you look better today than you did when you took this picture. So anyway, but I got mine when I was 16 years old. And I've had my driver's license now for 41 years. But several years ago... I received a notice from the DMV that I had to go in and actually retake a driver's written test in order to get my driver's license renewed. Has anybody else had to to do that? I had to do that several years ago. and, And I thought, you know, after 40 years, no wrecks, only a couple of tickets, I'm thinking, I've got this down. I'm one of the better drivers on the road, you know. Now, my wife would beg to differ with that. Um, in fact, she says that the only reason why I'm still alive is because she drives with me in the car, and she has saved me, and, and that's probably uh, debatable. But, um, but you know, it was interesting to go through, and I got nervous. Like, oh, man, I got to take a driver's test again. You know, I got to. So I studied and, and, you know, went through the whole deal. And it was good to reconnect and just kind of reevaluate um, the new laws and that type of thing. Well, as we close out 2 Corinthians tonight, Paul says something that we're going to see in chapter 13. In fact, if you want to turn over there, verse 5, he says something very interesting When he says to the church in Corinth, he says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves and do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? He's saying, look, test yourselves, examine yourselves to see if you are really a Christian, that you're really a follower of Christ. And at first glance, that probably sounds weird, right? That probably seems kind of odd. Like, why would he say that? But you know, Jesus said a similar thing in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, I'll read it to you in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Isn't that heavy to think about? That's a heavy statement. That there will be people who say, Lord, I taught Sunday school. Lord, I was on the worship team. Lord, I went on a missions trip. Lord, I tithed consistently. Lord, I did all of these things. And Jesus is going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. That's heavy. That is sobering. That there might be people in our midst People who come to this church who are religious, who are maybe playing church, who maybe even are participating in ministry, but have never really known 
Jesus. So Paul says, test yourselves. You see, we can fool others. We can even fool ourselves. But we can't fool Jesus. Now, we've noted in this study, if you've been with us in this study of 2 Corinthians, we've noted that Paul, his apostleship has been under fire by these men that he's nicknamed the quote-unquote super apostles. And he's not talking about the 12 that followed Jesus. He's not talking about Peter and James and John and those guys. He's talking about these false teachers that came in that kind of propped up themselves as these quote-unquote super apostles. In fact, we'll see in our text tonight, he calls them the most eminent apostles, but he's talking very sarcastically when he says this. You know, it's kind of like a tongue-in-cheek type of thing that Paul is saying. And these guys were questioning Paul's authority. And we've noted the reason why is because if he could get people to doubt Paul's authority, then they could get those people to doubt Paul's message. And if they doubted his message, the message of God's word and God's truth, then that could send them down a very dangerous rabbit trail. So here's what Paul does. Paul puts himself to the test. And he shares here the results of his examination with the Corinthians. And what he's going to show is that he passed with flying colors. And what Paul does is he points to five marks of his heart and his method of ministry to illustrate that he was really the real deal. But what he shares here, and I want you to note this, is really insightful for anybody here in this room, anybody watching online, anybody who might hear this later on who has a desire to be used by God, what Paul says here, we need to take note of. So if you're taking notes, the first mark that Paul mentions here is that his ministry was evidenced by signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Look at verse 11. He says, I have become a fool in boasting... You have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended by you, for in nothing was I behind the most, here's his sarcasm, sarcasm, the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. I want to pause there for a moment and note this. Now, Paul is sort of being sarcastic here when he says, I've become a fool in boasting. It's like, you guys have moved me to do something that I really don't like to do, and that was to talk about himself. What Paul liked to talk about was Jesus. He liked to preach Jesus, but because he's defending the fact that Jesus had sent him, he is going down this road. But I want you to know something. Paul knew that apart from Jesus, he was nothing. That it was, that he was, except for Jesus and the grace of God, Paul was, was nothing. Paul would say this, I am what I am by the grace of God. I hope you know that. I hope that's your story as well. As you look at your life and, and maybe I, I can look at my life and, and see the, you know, the path that I probably would have ended on and gone on had my dad not come to Christ and then I came to Christ and my mom was already saved. But, but if those things hadn't happened, man, I, I can see that it would have been a whole different picture for me. So I can look and it's like Paul say, say, I am what I am by the grace of God. And the fact that God's hand and grace were upon Paul was 
evident for all to see. So he notes here in verse 12, truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Signs, wonders, and mighty deeds point to a noticeable demonstration of God's working in power. It's the type of thing that makes you kind of stop and, and opens up your eyes and suddenly you're seeing that, hey, God is in this place. God is moving and working in this group. And so it's evident that God was moving. When Paul came to Corinth, he's saying, look, it was evident that what was happening, what was going on is something that only God could do. Now, Paul, we've noted this already in our study that Paul said that God has chosen to use the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. That's how God works. That's one of the things that, that we're going to see in the study that Tyler's going to do is how God takes foolish people and foolish things and to, to confound the wise, to make us stop and go, okay, there's no way, there's nothing about that person that should make us stop and go, you know, that, that guy's incredible. That's why that happened. No, the whole idea is that we're nothing God's everything and that's what makes us stop and see that hey this was God this was a work of God now we don't have the examples recorded in the book of Acts of when Paul went to Corinth of what exactly these mighty deeds and acts and wonders were but the, the inference here is uh, the implication here is that those in Corinth knew that's why they're not pushing back. They knew the testimony of the fact that Paul's ministry was marked by the power of God. And I think all true ministry will be evidenced by a divine working of God's power in presence. That, that lives are changing. That, that, that God's transformation is happening in people and in situations and in marriages. So the first thing we see hear about Paul and his testimony is the fact that his ministry was evidenced by the signs and wonders and mighty deeds. The second thing we want to note is that Paul points to, in reference to his ministry, is, is how he supported himself so as to not be a burden to them. This was speaking of his heart. Look at verse 13. For what is it in which you were inferior to other churches except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me for this wrong. Again, he's being sarcastic here, you know. So when Paul, if you were with us in our study through this book, we've noted that when Paul went to Corinth, he was, he was a tent maker. So he had a, he'd get up in the morning and he would work on making tents. And then in the afternoon and the evening, he would go and preach and share and, and meet with people. And he's speaking in contrast here to these quote-unquote super apostles who demanded compensation for their service. Paul's saying, look, I went the extra mile to not burden you in any way. Paul did everything that he possibly could to not hinder the preaching of the gospel. He went the extra mile at his own sacrifice so as to not hinder the preaching of God's word. So I want to encourage you tonight, if you want to be in ministry, realize that the way that you live can either be a blessing to the ministry of the gospel, it can be a confirmation of the ministry of the gospel, or it can be a hindrance to the ministry of the gospel. So how you live is very, very important. 
You don't want to have any hindrances. You don't want to be living in such a way that ruins the testimony. And too often we see that happening today. If you want to represent Jesus to others, you have to take this seriously. Because if you lose people's respect because of the way that you're living and compromise, then the message of the gospel gets diminished. People don't want to hear it. So the second thing Paul points to is that how he supported himself as to not be a burden to them. The third thing Paul points to is his motivation, that he wanted to give to people and not take from them. Look at verse 14. Now for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. And I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours, but you. This is such a powerful thing that he says. Paul says, look, I wasn't seeking yours. In other words, I wasn't wanting something from you. That wasn't my heart. That wasn't what I was thinking about. I wasn't coming to get. I was coming to give. I wasn't seeking yours. He says, I was seeking you. Your heart. I came there with the sole purpose of wanting to pour into you. And listen, true ministry is always about pouring into people, seeking to build them up. It's sad today. I think we see a lot of ministries that seek to use people for their own programs and their own agenda. And I don't think that's God's way at all. Paul says, I wasn't seeking anything from you, just you. I was seeking you and your heart. And then he gives this parental analogy. Notice, for the children ought not to lay up for their parents, but the parents for the children. Now, I think all of us here, how many of us are parents? Here, have your parent, raise your hand. I think all of us who are parents at one point or another have thought Man, I hope one of my kids make it big so they can take care of me in my old age. How many of you have thought that before? Okay, I'm not the only one. Um, well, so far it hasn't happened yet in my family. But, uh, but I've thought that, you know. But, but in reality, most of us know that's probably not going to happen. And as parents, we are laying up for our kids, hoping to have something to leave behind to them. Because the heart of a parent is to give. It's to build up, not to take. And Paul was a true spiritual father to the church in Corinth. And he took that role seriously. And so he says here, I will very gladly spend, verse 15, and be spent for your souls, that though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. Now this is often a reality in parenting and in ministry. And parenting and ministry is really about being poured out for your kids. And I love what Paul says here. I will gladly spend, and I love being spent on your behalf. I think one of the greatest experiences in ministry is at the end of a long day of ministry where you just feel spent. You just feel poured out, you know, by the Lord. And you're, you're like, man, I, you got to fill me up now, Lord, because, but it's such a great feeling to know that your life has just been, been poured out in a sense as an offering. I pray all the time on Sundays, Lord, with, about our ministry team here, Lord, fill us, fill us afresh today and then pour us out that we might be a blessing to your people and that we might glorify you. 
There's something that is, is so wonderful about that. And there's a real spiritual component involved in, in service to the Lord. There's the, the, the warfare, the attack, and everything that goes into that. And so, you know, if you've been involved in ministry, you know there are times where you just feel just, you're just done. You're just spent. You're just like, man, I just, I just go home and take a nap, you know. And it's like, like just... That, but it's a wonderful feeling. In the same way, as a, a parent, it's, it's equally great knowing that you did something that you, you spent or you were spent in spending all day long, you know, at your kid's school or whatever, and they were blessed by it. It's a great feeling. Well, Paul shares that an often glaring reality, though, about ministry and parenting here when he says this, but the more abundantly I love you, the less I'm loved in return. Now, let me ask you this again. How many of you are parents? How many of you experience that as a parent? Like, you feel like, the more abundantly I love my kids, the more that they don't love me. And if you haven't experienced that yet, wait till they become teenagers. Um, you'll experience it. It's going to happen. It's part of, the, part of the territory. But the same thing happens in ministry. It's a lot of times where you just don't feel appreciated. And so I want to say this, anybody here who, you know, you're desiring to be used by God, don't do it for the pat on the back, because chances are it's not going to happen. That's why I always say we serve an audience of one. But it's harder, especially today in this, you know, consumer-minded society that we live in. Oftentimes in this consumer mentality that has infiltrated the church, people are more apt to share what they don't like than what they're blessed by. But I will say this. I will say that I I have seen a big change in that since COVID. Big change because a lot of people and a lot of people who have come, you know, back to fellowship and stuff here have been just so happy that we're open. And so that appreciation has been flowing a lot, you know, it's like, thank you so much for being open, you know, type of a thing. But, but oftentimes, you know, in this consumer minded society that we live in where everybody's just, you know, what can I get from this? That, that, that they can be, you know, a little bit more critical. And so Paul's saying here, it's something that happens is, you know, the more I love, the less I'm loved in return. The fourth thing he mentions is Paul could point to a proven track record and a consistency in him and those who were connected to him in ministry. Look at verse 16. But be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I have caught you by cunning. Did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you. Now I want to read verse 16, 17 again um, in the New Living Translation. It'll be on the screen because this is, you know, kind of like, what the heck does he mean by this? Well, I think the New Living Translation gets it really well. It says this. Some of you admit that I was not a burden to you, but others still think that I was sneaky and I took advantage of you by trickery. But how? Did any of the men I sent to you take advantage of you? Here's what Paul's saying. I want you to name one time where I or anyone associated with me took advantage of you. It didn't happen. And then he says in verse 18, I urged Titus and sent a, 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 our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Did we not walk in the same spirit? Didn't Titus come with the same heart that I had when I came to you? Did we not walk in the same steps? You know, I had a friend years ago who was battling cancer. 
And he went to this place every month to get his, his treatment. And I remember talking to him when he was toward the end of his time. And he said, Rob, he goes, this place that I was going to to get my cancer treatments, he goes, it was amazing. It was just such a, a wonderful place. And he, and, and, and he said, you know, that probably sounds weird. You know, I'm going to get cancer treatments, you know. And, and he said, but just the way that they treated me and the way that they cared for me and, and the way that they, you know, were, were, you know, they loved on me. I just always felt special and well cared for w- when I went there. And so when his treatment was all done, and praise God, he, his treatment, you know, he ended up being in remission and he's, you know, still alive to this day. But he said he sat down with the director and he said, you know, I got to tell you, he goes, I pastor a church and in the times that I've been here, I've been so blown away by the care of your team and your facility that oftentimes I've thought, I wish my church was more like this. And he says, what's the secret? And the guy said, DNA. And he was like, DNA, what do you mean by that? And he says, well, here's the deal. We're dealing with cancer. So everybody that we hire in this place has to be an expert. He said, but here's the thing. If I find a guy that, you know, and let me back up. He said, and this is our DNA. He says, our DNA is we want every single one of our patients to feel special. We are patient first. That's our mentality. He said, so. When I'm interviewing two doctors or two nurses or somebody that we're going to bring on staff, they all have to be experts in their field. But I have one guy, he might be a little bit high here, but he doesn't have our DNA. He doesn't have that good bedside manner. He's not great with people. And then there's another guy that's maybe still an expert, but he's a little lower than this guy. He says, I'll hire this guy every single time. He wanted people on his team that had the same DNA. And because of that, they have this consistency of a track record that is bringing forth that heart of, hey, this is what we are about. Well, here at Calvary Vista, we have a DNA as well. And our DNA is that we are Jesus-focused, that we are servant-minded, that our heart is for the people, our body here at Calvary Vista, and our heart is for our city. And another thing that is a part of the DNA of people that, that work here, or most people that work here, is everybody wears multiple hats. In other words, no one does just one thing. Very few people on our team just do one thing. It's part of our, our, our DNA of our church. And I think this DNA, though, has been the reason why we have people in our church here that have been here for over 30 years. We have people on our staff that have been here over 30 years. There's a proven track record about what we are doing and what we have been doing and the track record that we have had, you know, in our community. It's one of the reasons I think that we have a somewhat of a smaller staff, but a large volunteer base. Because of that same reason, there's a DNA that people have caught. And this is what Paul is saying is there's a proven track record that he had. And there was a proven track record that he passed on to, or a proven DNA that he passed on to those who were serving with him. And I ask you this question, I want you to think about tonight. What is your track record? 
What is the consistency that you have modeled in your life? What have you modeled in, in your ministry that maybe you've been a, a part of? I was recently talking to a guy who was from another church. And he was basically sharing with me, kind of complaining about the fact that he didn't feel like he was getting the opportunity in ministry at his church that he felt like he deserved. So I started asking him questions. And the longer I talked to him and the longer I heard his story, it became very, very apparent that in every single church and every, and he'd been like in four, every single church and every single ministry that he had been in, he had had run-ins with the leadership in all of them. And that was his track record. And I said to him, I said, well, it, it, it kind of makes sense to me that the people that are leading right now in your church, you know, are a little bit reluctant to put you in ministry because you don't have a proven track record of faithfulness, of teamwork. You have an opposite type of track record. Paul's saying here that he had a proven track record. That they could look in his ministry, he was in Corinth for a year and a half, and they could look at the consistency in the way that he ministered there. You know, Jesus taught this, that if we're faithful in the little things, we'll be exalted in much. And I ask you this question, is your life marked by a consistency in the little things? Has your life been marked by a consistency in modeling the heart of Jesus? You know, when it comes to ministry, I think there are four marks of a person's calling. The first mark is that the man points to himself. We're told in 1 Timothy 3, chapter 3, verse 1, that it's a, good, it's a good thing. If a man desires the office of a pastor, a bishop, it says, same thing, he desires a good thing. The man points to himself. The second mark is the Holy Spirit points to the man. The fruit of the Spirit is evidence in his life that the character of Jesus can be seen. The third mark is that the sheep point to the man because Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. The sheep know the shepherd. That's why I always say if we ever bring you know, somebody on staff or somebody on our leadership team and we introduce them to the church, we should never ever get this like a scratch of the head, that guy? You know, like, really, him? No, it should always be like, oh, that makes perfect sense because I've been watching him serve and minister in that way. And then the fourth mark is that the leadership points because Paul said this, that we should not lay hands on any man suddenly. So those are all characteristics of someone who has a proven track record. That the Holy Spirit in him is evident. That it's evident to the sheep. That it's evident to the leadership. So Paul points here, number four, to his proven track record. Number five, Paul points to the reality that everything he did was for their edification. Look at verse 19. Again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. In other words, that word edification means to build you up. That was our focus, he's saying. Our focus was always to build you up, to help you grow. In fact, this is what Paul lays out in the book of Ephesians when he's talking about how the church should operate. I'll read it to you, but it'll be on the screen. He says in this, speaking of the Holy Spirit, and he himself gave some to be apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers, but here's the reason why. 
for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry and for the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, this is what this means. For you to be a part of a church. Now, I want you to hear me on this. For you to be a part of a church family and be functioning properly in the body, your sole role is not to warm a seat. Your sole role is to be used, to be equipped, to be built up, to use the gifts that God has given to you. So he says that these offices have been given for this reason and this purpose, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And then he tells us what that looks like. It looks like, first of all, a maturity where we're growing in to Jesus. He says this, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to the perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And another place Paul talks about how We, the body, are to be growing into the head who is Christ. How many of you were here last week and heard my son preach, Aaron? Okay. Did you guys enjoy that? Yeah. Love love when Aaron teaches. When Aaron was a little baby, he had an enormous head. I'm serious, man. It was huge. It was was like, how does he hold that thing up? You know, I mean, it was just, just gigantic head. And his little body had to grow into the head. I think he just had a great big brain because he's like super, he's a thinker, man, you know. And he had to grow into that head. Well, listen, Jesus is the head of the church and he's huge. He's gigantic. And we are to be all growing into him who is the head Christ. But here's the beautiful thing. None of us, I mean, we're never, ever, ever, this is the beauty of of the body and being a Christian is that none of us ever, ever arrive. We never, ever come to that place where like, okay, I've made it. But here's the really cool thing, is that our growing into the head who is Jesus isn't just an individual thing. It's actually more of a collective thing because it's collectively as we're growing together that we represent the body of Christ. And all of our different giftings and personalities and talents and callings that God has given to us, that together as we're growing, and this is Paul saying, this is the maturity that the, that the body is seeking that's growing into that maturity in Christ, but not just maturity, also stability. Verse 14, he says, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the coming, cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. It says, look, you're growing not just in your maturity, but your stability. Because God's saying, look, I don't want you guys to be like ships being tossed by the wind and the waves. I want your walk with Jesus to be marked by a stability that you know what you believe, that you know why, that you're grounded in the Lord and you're, you're not being you know, pulled by this wind of doctrine or that wind of doctrine, but you know what you believe. And not just a stability, but also a usability. He says there in Ephesians 4 and verse 15, again, it'll be on the screen, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into all things, here it is, into him who has the head Christ from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love this is the goal of what the church is about this is what we are seeking to accomplish as we study God's word together 
as we have our men's groups and our women's groups and our youth ministry and children's ministry and, and home groups and all the different you know things. It's all a part of this strategic thing that we are seeking to see people in our body and all of us collectively growing in maturity into Christ, growing in our stability in our walk, growing in our usability to be used by Jesus. Paul said a similar thing in the book of Colossians when he said this. Him, speaking of Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom for this reason, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And Paul said, for this I toil, struggling with all energy that he powerfully works with me. I'm convinced that when I stand before the Lord, And we are going to all stand before the Lord to be judged, not a judgment of damnation, but a judgment of rewards, that my judgment from the Lord is going to be on how well I did this, of seeking to help people grow in their maturity in Christ. So that's Paul's goal for the churches that he pastored and the churches that he planted. But Paul's concern for Corinth is this. He's concerned that rather than being built up, they're going to be torn down. Look at verse 20. He says, For I fear lest when I come I shall not be found, I shall not find you you such as I wish. I'm not going to find you mature, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. In other words, we're going to have kind of an encounter that isn't going to be pretty. Lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, and conceits and tumults. Paul is burdened here by the carnality that he's hearing about. And so he's burdened by this. He's fearing like, hey, what I'm hearing is is kind of causing me consternation that, that you're not growing in maturity, but you're actually going the opposite direction. So he says in verse 21, lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of uncleanness and fornication and lewdness, which they have practiced. The humbling that Paul is referring to here is his brokenness of heart over their sin. Because this is what Paul understood. Don't miss this. Paul understood that sin never lies dormant. Do you realize that? Sin in your life never lies dormant. That's why the Bible says that sin is like leaven. And a little bit of leaven, what does it do? It leavens the whole lump. A little, le- a little bit of leaven, it, it covers the, the it, it impacts and it permeates the whole loaf of bread. Paul understood sin doesn't lie dormant. And there was sin in the camp in Corinth. And he realized if it wasn't dealt with, it was only going to grow. It was only going to spread. Like a root in the ground, it grows and it produces a tree that produces bad fruit. When we first moved into the house that we live in now in Oceanside, in our backyard, right outside our patio, were six liquid amber trees. Now, I'm sure when they planted those, and for many, many years when those trees were growing, no one thought anything about them. 
They just nice shade, nice little barrier there from, from the neighbors. But those roots, they liquid amber trees, don't buy one. <laughs> don't plant them. Because their roots really don't grow down, they go out. And they grew all the way across the whole patio from about this stage to about the middle of the seating. We have a pretty big patio. And our, our patio was like a mountain range. I mean, it was just all like this because of the damage of those roots that started small, but they spread. That's what sin does when it's not dealt with. And Paul understood this. That's why the writer of Hebrews talks about a root of bitterness, that if it's not dug up, if it's not dealt with, what does it do? It spreads and it defiles many. And the very attitude that the church had adopted of Paul was sinful and would just increase and spread to greater sin and greater problems if there was not repentance. And for for Paul to have come and disciplined this church that he planted and nurtured would be a very humbling thing for him as well as a grieving thing. But Paul was willing to do that because of his love for them. So this is what he's saying here. Now, as we come to chapter 13, after he gives these five marks of his ministry and his methods that, that really is, Paul was saying, look, I, I'm examining me. I'm, I'm encouraging you to examine you. I'm examining me. And this is what my test is revealing about my ministry. As we come to chapter 13, he's going to give a final warning, a final exhortation, a final prayer and a final salutation, a final goodbye. Let's begin with the final warning. He's going to warn them. And you know what? Listen, we have to be willing to warn. Colossians, Paul said that we we preach Jesus, we proclaim him, warning every man and teaching every man. And it's been said, my, my, my mentor, John Corson, used to say this. If a pastor is only teaching the sheep and not warning the sheep he's just fattening them up for the kill we have to not just teach we have to warn so paul's going to warn he says this this will be the third time i'm coming to you by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word shall be established i have told you before and foretell as if i were present the second time and now being absent i write to you to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare. Paul is saying, I've already warned those who had been sinning when I was there on my second visit. And now again, I warn them and all others, just as I did before, that, but, but if I come the next time, I'm going to have to deal with them. Did you ever hear this when you were a kid? Wait till your father gets home. <laughs> Did you ever hear that? <laughs> Any of you wives ever say that? Wait till your father gets home. Well, th- this is sort of the idea. His father's, dad's coming home. Paul took his role as a spiritual father seriously, and spiritual discipline was a part of that. And the Bible tells us whom the Lord loves, he chastens. You see, the chastening, the discipline's out of love. Why? Because it's seeking to correct it's a lack of love that just says, oh, you know, whatever, just you know, do what you want. And they watch you go down a wrong path. Paul says here in verse 3, since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me 
who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. This is a very interesting play on words that Paul is using here because Paul is comparing his coming to them to Christ's death and resurrection. He's saying, remember, remember Jesus? Remember how he was crucified and when he was crucified, they thought that he was weak, but three days later he rose again and they saw his power. Paul's saying, look, you guys think that we're weak? We maybe seemed weak. We kind of took a weak posture when we were with you. But if we come again, you're going to see us in power and it's going to look different than before. So Paul gives a final warning that's then followed by a final exhortation. Look at verse five. He says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. But I trust that you will know that you are not disqualified. Now this is again a heavy thing. He says, test yourselves to see if you are really in the faith. There's two things that Paul is wanting them to consider. He's wanting them to consider, number one, that they believed right. That they believed right. That they're really in the faith. That their faith is in the right thing. That it's in Jesus and what he did on the cross. But he's also wanting them to test themselves that they're behaving right. Not only that they have put their faith in Jesus, but that Jesus is in them. You see, Christianity begins when a person embraces the truth about Christ. They embrace the gospel. That's being in the faith. It's believing rightly about Jesus, that he is God, that he is God in human flesh that came to this planet in order to save mankind that had rebelled against God, that when we were dead in our sins and we were lost without Jesus, Jesus came on a rescue mission to save us, to bring us back into right relationship with God to be our redeemer. And a person that embraces that about Jesus, he becomes their redeemer, their savior, and they become a part of the family of God. Their sins are forgiven and God looks and, and, and he says, you know, you're now a part of my family and I look at you and I see you now that you are righteous in my son. And when a person embraces Christ, Christ comes to live in their hearts by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells them. And as the Holy Spirit is indwelling us, he begins to do this work of transformation in us that starts on the inside and then eventually is manifested on the outside of our lives. Over time, a change should be evident to those who are around them. That they see something different. That they see, that they know the Lord, that they begin to resemble Jesus in their conduct and in their love for others and in their behavior. And Christ begins to change their hearts and he changes their perspectives and he changes their priorities and he changes their, their values. And it's evidence. And so it was right for Paul to give this exhortation to them to examine themselves because there was a lot going on in Corinth that, that was being led by these false teachers that didn't resemble Christ at all. And so Paul was saying, look, you guys have been following these guys that, that don't resemble Jesus. You know, it's true. It's been said, you'll know them by their fruits. And the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in our lives begins to work out of our lives. So we need to examine ourselves. Is there any fruit in my life? 
So he gives a final warning, a final exhortation, and then a final prayer. And this is interesting to me in light of the context because when others in the church reject or criticize you, I think the natural tendency is to stop praying for them and devote our prayers toward the vindication of self. Paul does the opposite here. Look at verse 7. He says, Now I pray to God that you do no evil, Not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. In other words, Paul's saying, we pray that, that God, we pray to God that you will not do what is wrong, refusing our correction, but that you would do what is right before we come. Even if that makes it look like we failed in demonstrating our authority. It's like, hey, that's okay. It's okay. If, you, if, you're, if your heart's right with God, I don't care about that. In verse 8, he says, For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. We cannot, in other words, we cannot oppose the truth, but we must always stand for the truth. In verse 9, he says, For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Paul's saying, look, if the Corinthians are strong due to their repentance and embrace our authority that is from the Lord, then we'll appear weak because we'll not have to enforce the authority. We're not going to have to come in discipline, and that's okay. That's his point here. He says, and so this also we pray that you may be complete. Or another way to read that is we're praying that you would be mature, that you would be, be acting like mature believers. Verse 10, he says, therefore, I write these things being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given to me for edification and not destruction. Again, he's reminding them here, this is my motive in writing these things. It's not to destroy you, but it's to build you up. So he gives final warning, final exhortation, a final prayer, and then finally, a final salutation. Verse 11, he says, finally, brethren, Farewell. The word farewell there is literally rejoice. Finally, brethren, rejoice. He's going to end on a real positive note here. Finally, brethren, rejoice. Why rejoice? Because being a part of the family of God is something to be excited about. It is. You know, I've often said this, and I think it's true, that the family of God is a dysfunctional family. We are, because we're sinners. We're still broken. We're in the process of being transformed. It's a dysfunctional family, but it's the best dysfunctional family around because we have an awesome head who is Jesus. But rejoicing, catch this, rejoicing indicates that I'm going to lift my head off of the problems. I'm not going to focus on the problems, but I'm going to lift my head and I'm going to focus on Jesus. I can rejoice because he is faithful. So he says, finally, brethren, farewell or rejoice and become complete or become perfect. In other words, pursue maturity. It's like the writer of Hebrews says that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as some do, but instead we commit ourselves, we devote ourselves to stirring up one another to love and good works. We're moving each other and encouraging one another on how to be mature in Christ. So he says, finally, brethren, farewell or rejoice, become complete, be of good comfort. 
The word comfort carries the idea of supporting one another or standing by one another and holding on to one another and encouraging one another. Isn't that a beautiful picture of a family, what a family does? It rallies around each other. Be of good comfort, be of one mind. The exhortation to be of one mind is a command for unity. And unity is essential for the church. Unity is what Jesus prayed for. In John chapter 17, he prayed that on the night before he went to the cross that we would be one, even as he and the Father are one. It's a major emphasis in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul said, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Everybody say endeavoring. That word means to make every effort. You strive at it. You're working at it to keep the unity. He says, live in peace just to make sure they got it. Live in peace, he says, is the next thing. In Colossians 3.15, we're told, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And oftentimes we think that that's talking about God's peace in us, but if the context, it isn't. He's saying, let God's peace rule in your relationship, rule in your hearts, that, that God's peace would be, that there wouldn't be a bunch of conflicts and divisions and skirmishes because we're seeking to let God's peace rule in this place. Paul put it this way in Romans twelve eighteen: If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And so this is what Paul is saying here to them. In his final salutation, he's saying, finally, brethren, rejoice, become complete, be of good comfort, be of one mind, let us be one, live in peace. And then he says, and this will be the result, and the God of love and peace will be with you. God's blessing will be on your life and God's blessing will be on your church. And then he says in verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. You know, this idea of greeting. You know, we saw the, the video from Dave and Danae, the Downs, and God's doing a great work with them. And we're really hoping when things open up, they want us to bring a team to go and minister there. And it is an incredible city. I was there two years ago, the very beginning of their church, and God's just using them in a powerful, powerful way. So we're looking forward to bringing a team there, um, hopefully one day in the near future. But when you go to Italy, people come up and they, they greet you. They kiss you on both sides of the cheek. And I'm Italian. I'll be honest with you. I don't like it. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of that, especially when dudes are kissing me on the cheek, you know. So don't do that, please. Don't come up to me. Vern, Vern's kissed me on the cheek. He can do that. He's 85 or something. So <laughs> I love him. Um, not that I don't love the rest of you, but he kind of is, reminds me of my dad a little bit, so... Um, my dad's in heaven right now, but anyway. Um, but this whole idea of greeting each other with a kiss didn't start in Italy, didn't start in Spain. You know what it started in the church? It started in the church. In the Roman culture, to call another person brother was a breach of Roman protocol. It was actually unlawful to call people brothers and sisters who weren't a part of your family. And so this idea of greeting one another with a kiss was a way of just affectionately in that Roman, you know, empire there of, of just 
you know, embracing the brotherhood, the sisterhood, the family aspect of the body of Christ. Today, we hug, we fist bump, we might chest bump, you know. It's all our way of saying the same thing, like, bro, you know, sister. A couple weeks ago, I fist bumped some gal in the church, and my, mom, my wife goes, did you just fist bump her, you know? Like, like you shouldn't do that with a woman, and, but she, she did it back, so hey, you know. <laughs> it's like greeting, hey, hey, sis, you know, I love doing high fives, you know, kind of thing. All right, let's wrap this up. Verse 13. All the saints greet you, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Listen, I love this. Don't, don't, don't just breeze over this. This is what we all need. The grace of Jesus, the love of the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit. That's what we need. We need to be a church, and we need to be a group of people who are relying on his grace, showing his love to one another and those who are outside, and walking in the Spirit. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this wonderful letter that you've inspired the Apostle Paul to write to this church in Corinth, a church that was a very dysfunctional church, but a church that you were working in, people that you loved, as a father that you sought to correct because that's what you do with your children. A church that you weren't going to just turn a blind eye to the sin, but you would call it out. Because your desire was that, that this body of believers, just like your desire for our body of believers, of this church family, is that we would be a group of people growing in the knowledge of Jesus, growing into the head who is Christ, growing in our maturity, growing in our stability, so that we might be growing in our usability for your kingdom. And so, Lord, I pray tonight as we wrap up this book, as we wrap up this study, that we would be challenged tonight to examine ourselves, to put ourselves to the test. And if there would be, just like David declared, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, O God, and know my way, and see if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me, Lord, in the way everlasting. Remove that from me. Because, Lord, we want to be people walking in your way, following your will, resting in your love, that you might have, God, in us an openness, that our hearts would be open to your molding, and your shaping to make us more like you. And so, Lord, we ask you these things. We give our hearts to you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.